The following content is provided to you as a ministry of Snowbird Wilderness Outfitters, a high-adventure Christian wilderness camp in Andrews, North Carolina. Snowbird Wilderness Outfitters exist to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ through the exposition of Scripture and personal relationships in order to equip the church to impact this generation. For more information, visit our website at swoutfitters.com or follow us on Twitter using the handle at SnowbirdSwo. Enjoy the message. Hello, everybody. So, welcome. We're super glad you guys are here for the marriage retreat. Uh, anybody here this is your first time at Snowbird? No. Really? Great. That is awesome. Well, man, glad you guys are here. It's, uh, it's going to be a good weekend, man. It's, it's been a good weekend for me and my wife. Uh, we've been married uh, for 12 and a half years. I think 9 to 12, somewhere around there. Uh, so... The good, she can't keep it straight either, so we're good. Um, but we've been married for a while, uh, and, you know, for us, the last 12, we'll say, the last 12 years, um, we've been able to come to this marriage conference and just sit and take it in. And it's been really rich for us just to be at a conference where we're thinking about marriage the whole time. Uh, you know, even if y'all don't get anything out of the teaching, which is God's Word, so we're going to get something out of it, but even if you weren't to get something out of the teaching, just thinking about your marriage and working on your marriage and talking about your marriage for a full weekend, man, you're going to get a lot of benefit uh, from that. So, man, I I don't know a lot of you guys, and I don't know what your marriages are like. You know, probably there are some people that have been married for a long time, and your marriage is great. Some people that have just gotten married, uh, some people that, you know, this is kind of like last-ditch effort. Um, And, man, we're praying that the Lord does something huge this weekend. Even if you feel like, man, our marriage is right on track. We're praying that the Spirit will move through His Word, and, uh, and that this will be a huge weekend for y'all. So let me give you some homework, though. Man, when you get out of these sessions, talk to each other. That alone, just if you can get in the practice of doing that, that'll be transformative for you. Uh, it, even setting that as a, as a regular practice when you leave a sermon, just discussing it together. What did you get out of that? What did you feel? Do you think that's us? Man, that, that'll be so helpful for you this weekend. So we're praying it's really rich. So, uh, okay, let's dive in. We actually will not be in Ephesians chapter 5 on love and respect. Uh, We're going to be talking, we're going to zoom out and talk about a foundation for love and respect. Like when he says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. We got to zoom out and look at that foundation. But really, I want to kind of do an inception where we zoom out and look even further at the covenant relationship all through the Old Testament as leading up to our marriage covenant. So, you know, I kind of, wrestle with this for a while. I actually asked my kids yesterday. I said, hey, all right. So I went home for lunch. I got three kids. Uh, I got a 10-year-old and a 9-year-old and a 7-year-old. So I was like, all right, I get a chance to speak to a bunch of people about marriage. What do y'all think I should tell them? And so my oldest little theologian, she's like, oh, you got to tell them about Christ and the church and how they need to love each other and serve one another. I'm like, okay, great. That sounds good. Then move to the next younger, and I'm like, hey, what do you think? She said, uh, you got to tell them have fun. Marriage is a lot of fun. You got to tell them have fun. The end. And I was like, all right, great. I'll do that. My third one, uh, he was sitting there just eating like this. I was like, about you, boss? What do you think I got to tell him? He said, <laughs> he said, why don't you tell all the, la- <laughs> why don't you tell all the ladies to, uh, you know, keep the house clean and cook lots of steaks and everything should be good. <laughs> So, we got some work to do still, uh, 
but ironically, those are my three points for tonight. So, uh, <laughs> so no, we'll, we're going to jump in, man. We are going to be talking about love and respect this weekend, but I really feel like we need to zoom out on and, and look at the foundation for marriage. Now, one thing we are going to assume is that we assume we're talking to believers this weekend, to folks that love Jesus and whose marriages are centered around Christ. Imperfectly, because everyone's marriage is imperfect, but we believe that we're, we're talking to believers who would share the idea that marriage is not primarily about us. It's not primarily about our, need, our needs getting met. It's primarily about Christ and His glory. And so we know that Amen. If your marriage isn't centered around the lordship of Christ, then it doesn't matter what like tips and tricks you pick up. You're starting from the wrong point because marriage is designed to work under Christ and through Christ and for Christ. So if you lift marriage out of that context, you take the foundations totally out. All you're left with are, 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 is the equivalent of like a BuzzFeed top 10, you know, here's how to improve your marriage. But I mean, we, we recognize that the foundation of marriage is Christ. So what I want to do tonight, I want to go deeper into the foundation of marriage, and I want to look at covenants way back in the Old Testament to inform our understanding of the marriage covenant today. Because I think a lot of times we call it a marriage covenant, but we don't have a solid idea of what the covenants even were back in the old days, back in the Old, uh, old Testament. So let me read. It's going to get real nerdy real quick for a few minutes, all right? Y'all good with that? All right, so it's going to get real nerdy, and then we'll surface out of the nerdiness. But we need to talk about what exactly a covenant is. Because if you look at the biblical story, it's structured around covenants, these sacred agreements between God and people. But in those days, like way back when, if you're flipping back past David, past Moses, all the way back to Abraham, you have covenants as a cultural practice in the day. So what you would have is sometimes you'd have two nations that would make a covenant. So you'd have this stronger sovereign nation that would be like next door to this smaller, weaker nation, nation like a vassal nation. And what they would do is they'd make a covenant together. They'd make an agreement. And so they would put in this agreement between them where there would be promises of the covenant and there would be curses as a result of, of breaking it. So you'd have promises and conditions that'd be built in just like a contract would be today. So you can see this between two men in the Old Testament, or you can see this between two nations, where they would say, all right, I'm going to uphold my end, and if I don't, let X, let blank happen to me. And you hold up your end, and if you don't, then this will happen to you. So oftentimes what they do is they, they would do what they would call cutting a covenant. So if you haven't heard this, and most of you have if you've been in church for a while, but if you haven't heard it, it's a pretty brutal practice what they would do is they'd make an agreement between two men or two nations, and they would take animals, and they'd add in this symbolic ceremony of cutting a covenant, where they would take an animal like a bull or a donkey, even in the ancient Near East, they would take a goat or a ram or all of the above, and they would kill the animals and cut them straight in half. And the way they'd make this covenant is they'd put half of the animal over here, and they'd put half of the animal over here. And if they had multiple animals, they'd kind of make a trail, and you can imagine how much blood would be involved in killing a bull and letting this blood run out. And then a, a goat and then a ram and letting this blood run out. And so what would happen is these two members who are making a covenant together, which in these days function more like a contract, they would join together and they'd say, all right, here's what I will uphold. All right, that's what I agree to you. And this guy over here would say, great, then here's what I will uphold. Agreed? Agreed. Let's do this. And they would walk through the middle of these 
tore up animals, blood everywhere, and they would get to the end and say, all right, if I break this covenant, let that happen to me. Let me be cut up. Let me be destroyed. Let my life be ended. Pretty, br- pretty brutal practice, right? Like nothing, nothing we do today, you know. No one shows up to work with blood on their shoes because they bought a house that weekend or, you know, something like that. I was closed on her house, you know. Uh, but, okay, so it's a pretty brutal uh, covenant that they would do. Okay, so jumping in, let's zoom in on one covenant in, in, uh, specifically, which is the covenant with Abraham that God makes. Promise we're getting the marriage. This ties in the marriage, all right? So Genesis 15. Abraham would have been familiar with this practice. He probably made deals like this in the past. So we get into this Genesis 15, and God has made promises. He'd made a covenant with Abraham. Genesis 15, starting in verse 7. We'll go through verse 18. We'll have it on the board if you don't have a Bible with you. No big deal. So, Genesis 15. And God said to Abraham, I am the Lord your God, who brought you from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. So he's saying, I brought you out, and here's what I'm going to do. One of the promises was, I'm going to give you this land. So Abraham asks him, he says, Lord, how can I know? How am I to know that I'll possess it? So God said to him, okay, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. Abraham knows what's going on. Oh, we're going to make a covenant. He's going to uphold his end. I'm going to uphold my end. He's going to give the land. I'm going to be obedient. This is going to go great. So it says he brought all these. He cut them in half and he laid each half over against the other. But he didn't cut the birds in half. Now, when birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. So apparently it was a long time from when Abraham actually cut these animals apart to when God came and did something. So Abraham's waiting and waiting and waiting around till the buzzards start circling. He's shooing them away from this. And it goes on, it says, As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. Pick, picture the scene for a minute. You are alone. Out in the woods, you've just slaughtered animals and laid them in a weird design in the dirt. And now a deep sleep comes over you and a dreadful and great darkness fell on him. Terrifying scene. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that's not theirs and servants there, and they'll be afflicted for 400 years. He's telling them about the, uh, the, the slavery in Egypt that's going to come. But I will bring judgment on the nation they serve, Egypt, and afterwards they'll come out with great possessions. And as for you, you'll go to your fathers in peace and you'll be buried at a good old age. And they'll come back here in the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. All right, so he tells them what's going to happen in the future, the terms of his agreement here, and then he, then he does this. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. That had to be terrifying to see. A smoking fire pot and a flaming torch floating just passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram saying, to your offspring I give the land. Then he goes on. Okay, so in this culture, the covenants that people would make, this is really more like a contract. But what God does here with Abraham is he totally redefines covenant. Covenant is different than contract. So he redefines covenant in that usually the two would walk together saying, this is going to happen to me if I don't uphold my end. But in this, God walks alone through the pieces. Tells Abraham to sit still. I walk alone through these pieces. What he's saying is, 
I'm going to uphold both ends of this covenant, the sovereign end and the vassal end. I'm going to uphold the promises and I'm going to uphold the conditions, right? He's upholding both ends of the covenant. Why is he doing that? Because he knows Abraham can't do it. He can't do it. And he's covenanting to keep Abraham's side for him. He's going to do both sides of the work because he knows that Abraham can't do the work. Now, if you zoom out even further and look at all the covenants in the Old Testament, God does this every single time. So he makes a covenant with Noah. He makes a covenant with Abraham. He makes a covenant with Moses. That's really all the people. He makes a covenant with David. And then he makes a covenant with us. So you see five covenants of grace, uh, four of them in the Old Testament, and one of them, the new covenant, which is for us. All right, so with Noah, God makes a covenant with Noah when? Right after the flood, right? He floods the earth, and then he makes a covenant with Noah, and he promises, I will never destroy the earth again, Noah. Here's my covenant to you. I will never destroy the earth again. And what does Noah have to do? Nothing. Nothing. God is meeting both sides of this covenant. Noah, there's no conditions on his part because God knows Noah can't do this. Two verses after Noah and God make this covenant together, Noah's naked and drunk in his tent. Two verses. Mankind can't do it. We can't uphold our end of the bargain, right? So God's making a covenant with himself. Abraham, here, in this, we see this, I'll give you people, I'll give you land, I'll give a blessing to all the people. And he does put a condition on Abraham. He says, if you'll only obey and have faith. Psst, by the way, here's the faith you need to obey. Like, God tells him, you got to obey, you got to have faith. And then he gives him the faith he needs to obey. God's upholding both ends of the covenant with Abraham. What's crazy is that Abraham makes this covenant with the smoking pot, the the flaming torch. He makes this covenant two verses before he goes and sleeps with another woman. Sarah's like, hey, man, God said we're going to have a kid, but shop's closed. So what are we going to do? You need to go sleep with that servant girl. And he's like, okie doke, and goes and sleeps with the servant girl. This is two verses later. Abraham can't do it. God's got to uphold both sides of the covenant. Look at the Mosaic covenant where God makes a covenant with his people. After he brings them out of Egypt, they're at the mountain and the top's all burning and smoking. It's a terrifying scene. And God makes his covenant with the people saying, you'll be my prized possession. You'll be a nation of royal priests. You'll always be mine. I'll defend you if you'll obey through faith. Psst, but here's the sacrificial system because I know you can't do it. God's meeting both ends over and over and over. And he's making this covenant up on top of the mountain, knowing they're at the bottom making an idol right now. They can't do it. All these covenants that he's making is people fail right after over and over and over. David, he makes his promises to David, the fourth of fifth covenants. He makes his promises to David. I'm going to give you a great place. I'm going to give you a land to live in. I'm going to give you rest from your enemies and your throne will not depart from ever, forever. Four chapters later, David murders many men to cover up an affair. Man, we can't uphold our end of the covenant. So one of the themes in the covenant is that God is upholding both ends. Yes, there's requirements of obedience and faith on our end, but he gives us the faith that we need to obey him. It's really beautiful. And then we get to the new covenant, and that's the best one. That's the one that we're under. We are in agreement with God here, right? He makes a new covenant with us knowing We are going to fall short. He makes a covenant with you knowing you are going to fall short. So 
Look at the covenant in Jeremiah 31. We'll have it on the board. Jeremiah 31. This is an Old Testament prophet looking forward to the New Testament. And he says this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them out of, by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, even though I was their husband, declares the Lord. This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. This is the covenant for me and you. Listen to what he says. I will put my law within them. I'll write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Hey, know the Lord, because they'll all know me. From the least to the greatest, declares the Lord. I will forgive their iniquity and remember their sin no more. It's so, that's in the Old Testament. He's looking forward to what he's going to do with us. See, in the new covenant, God knows that we will break it too. So what he does is God himself enters into humanity and then keeps our side for us. He keeps our side of the covenant. Jesus never sins. He keeps our vassal side of the covenant here. The requirement is keep my law. And Jesus comes in and keeps our side for us. And then he gives us his law keeping. See, we have broken his covenant, but Jesus pays the price. See, his body, just like the bulls and the goats, his body is broken. He takes on the curse of the covenant. His body is broken for us. It's so good that he's basically doing all the work. Because not only does he pay the price and his body is broken, but then he forgives us. And he goes further than that and enters into our hearts to do the work on us from within. So with Christ, he upholds the sovereign side of the covenant. He always keeps his side. And then in a way, he upholds the vassal side of the covenant in that he pays the price for covenant breaking and then enters into us and causes us to be obedient by faith to his commands. He's doing all the work, basically. He's given the promises and then upholding the conditions. He's doing it all. God keeps his part and knowing we can't keep ours, he enables us to keep our part by giving us what we need, which is faith and obedience. He's doing all the work. Pause. Why in the world did we just go through that? What does this have to do with marriage and the marriage covenant? You see, marriage is a drama. Marriage is a skit, right? It's a play. We're, we're, we're showing the world something. And what we're showing them is Christ and the church. We're showing them God's covenant keeping with man. We are acting in a drama. And so marriage, and I put its point on the board, marriage is based on the strong bedrock of covenant love. Because I think what our culture gets wrong a lot of times is that m many marriages function and our culture preaches basically that marriage is an emotionally based contract, not covenant. It's an emotionally based contract. What do I mean by that? I mean emotionally based as in, okay, as long as I stay in love with you, like as long as I always feel the way I feel right now, then we're good. We're not going to have a lot of problems. Emotionally based. And what I would say is contract. Well, as long as she does her part, I'll do my part, and we shouldn't have any problems. So what we're saying is, as an emotionally based contract, we're saying, okay, as long as I always feel the same about you like 60 years from now, and as long as you always do what's right, then I'll do my part, and I'll do what's right. Now, we might never articulate this, but often we act like this. You think about what we're going to go through this weekend. We're talking about love and respect, where it says, basically, the husband is supposed to give love. That's the kind of fuel 
The husband's supposed to give love, and the wife is supposed to give respect. Well, in a contract-type relationship, it would say, well, I'll get the love when I get the respect. Like, I'll give the love when I get the respect. And then she's saying, well, I'll give the respect when I get the love. It's a stalemate. This sort of contract doesn't work, right? Not at all. But when we act like Christ, we're, we're giving with nothing in return. We're, that's the only thing that breaks the stalemate of contract is grace giving. Grace giving. You see this all throughout the scripture. Because here's the reality, man. Contracts can't survive storms. Contract, that can't survive infidelity. It can't. That can't take you the distance. It can't. Contract can't even survive preferences and strangeness within marriage, much less sin, right? But covenants survive. So a lot of people, when they, when they think, oh man, you know, I made this agreement, but I kind of want out, a lot of times they'll they'll fall back to feelings. Man, think about basing a marriage on feelings alone. Feelings can't hold you through the storms in your marriage. They can't. They're not strong enough to do it. You think about basing a marriage on the most fickle thing about you. Your feelings, they change like this. You eat a pound of steak and scallops, your feelings are going to go, your feelings change based on the movies you watch right? You watch a movie about racing cars, what you want to do? Drive fast, right? Watch a movie about fighting, you want to fight. Watch a movie about romance, you're romantic. Like, your, your feelings can change based on the song on a radio. Seriously. Happy song comes on, I'm happy. Adele comes on, oh my gosh, you know? <laughs> like, your feelings can change on a dime like that, and you're going to base your marriage on it? Now, are our emotions important? crucial. Our emotions are important, but they don't lead the way. They're not strong enough. See, the covenant sustains the love. The love can't sustain the covenant. You can't get it backwards. Your feelings, as fickle as they are, they can't hold this strong for the next 60 years. Feelings change. Covenant doesn't. So a lot of people say, man, our marriage is based on contract or feelings. Maybe your marriage is based on attraction. That ain't gonna work, right? There are four men, maybe, over 40 in the world that are attractive. None of them are in here, right? So, I mean, like, it's, attraction is not enough in the world. Like, attraction is not enough, man. So, marriage can't be based on contract or feelings alone or attraction. It has to be deeper than that. When we're looking at the marriage covenant, we're getting the love and respect. But when we're looking at the marriage, man, we need to mirror God in covenant and not act out of contract. See, contract says, I promise to love you, assuming you're going to do your part. This is a 50-50 kind of deal. It acts like the two men walking together through the pieces. I'm going to do my part, you're going to do your part? Yeah. As long as, long as we still feel like this is a good deal. That's the way contract language works. But with covenant, we mirror God who keeps covenant knowing we can't keep our part. That's how our marriages are structured, man. If we, so... People will ask, like, so, okay, if, if I'm really supposed to prefer the other person and, like, our bodies belong to them, like the First Corinthians 7 says, our, our preferences are supposed to take backseat to theirs and I serve them, aren't, aren't I doing all the work? That's why marriage is covenant. God did all the work. See, we mirror God in our attitudes and our actions in covenant keeping. We say, I will do my part even if you don't. That's what we originally said when we stand before the preacher right here and say, for better, for worse, I'll do my part even if you don't. That's what we originally said, but somewhere along the line it gets blurred. 
I'll do my part whether or not they do theirs. Now imagine this. Imagine a marriage where both people were committed to Christ-like covenant keeping, where this person says, I'm going to go all the way. Like, I'm going to do my part even if you never do your part. And if this person also said, I'm going to do my part even if you never do your part. Man, a successful marriage is not 50-50. It's 100-100, right? It's each person doing their part in mirroring Christ in covenant keeping, knowing this other person's going to fall short because we're sinful people. So, how, how do we mirror this in, in our marriages? Like, we know we can't duplicate it, but we can imitate it. We can't do the same thing because we're not Christ. So, uh, second point here is, is that we, uh, we imitate Christ's covenant keeping by loving and serving like God and with God's help. We imitate Christ's covenant keeping by loving and serving like God and with God's help. Okay, so we know the basis of covenant marriage, but how do we behave in covenant marriage? That's what the rest of this weekend's all about. We're going to dive in. Like, once you have the foundation laid for how we act within a covenant, then you can start talking about the particulars of, well, how do we show love and respect? How does respect look like, what what does it look like in your house? What does it look like at your kitchen sink? That's what we're going to be talking about all weekend. But uh, let me just give four quick thoughts. I'm going to close it up. So kind of four quick parameters on what this might look like. So the first one is, Marriage is sacred. Marriage is sacred. Man, marriage is not just something that God has set up. It is a sacred display of Christ in the church. We have very little in our lives today in our culture that's sacred, but marriage is one of them. It's one of them. It's sacred, and you get to be a part of this. See, your marriage displays to the world what Christ is like, what covenant is like, what God's love is like. Marriage preaches a sermon about Jesus to the world. So the question is, Are you preaching it well? Is your marriage preaching a sermon about Christ's love well to the world? I said to myself as well. Number two, first one is marriage is sacred. The second one is marriage, even the best ones, fall short. We need Christ, right? This is an analogy of Christ in the church. You're not actually Christ in the church, right? So we're sinful. We still need God's grace, right? We're not Christ in the church. We play a role. But the thing is, man, you individually You need Christ primarily, not your spouse primarily. You can't look to your spouse for what Jesus needs to do in you. You know what I'm saying? Like, your spouse can't do for you what only Christ can. While we are a picture of Christ in the church, we are not Christ in the church. But we do have God's help. See, covenant marriage isn't just an agreement between two people. It's more like an A-frame. It's an agreement with you, your spouse, and God. And your covenant with God draws you closer and keeps you stronger in your covenant with one another. It's a, it's a three-way covenant. And what's great is that we're not alone. We love through God's power. Like, and God's going to teach us how to love better and better. Our covenant with God strengthens our covenant with our spouse. And God's grace, this is good, like God's grace is going to help fill in the gaps where we fall short. Because you're going to screw up today. And your spouse is going to screw up today. And so since you aren't actually Christ in the church, you're going to need God's grace in, in your marriage to forgive when those things happen. Because our oneness with our spouse, our closeness with our spouse, when you're close to somebody, you see their faults, right? And that's where real covenant-keeping love shines. So the third one is related to that. Number three, Christ-like love covers sins. Christ-like love covers sins. Remember, in all these covenants, Christ is 
covering and forgiving the sins. So we can't do that. We can't forgive anyone's sins, but we mirror it in covering sins. 1 Peter 4, 8. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. So I think we should aim to see Christ more than we see sin in our spouses. What do you know the most about yourself? Your sin, your screw-ups, the way you fall short. So what is it easiest to see in the other people? Their sins, their screw-ups, and the way they fall short, right? So what we have to do, since that's what comes natural to us, noticing our spouse's sin, then we need to practice looking for evidence of Christ in our spouse's life, right? So are we looking, are we more aware of evidence of grace in their lives or need for change in their lives? We need to be actively looking for Christ more than we, and seeing Christ more than we see sin in our spouse's lives. Remembering uh, 1 Corinthians 13. 1 Corinthians 13, 7. And read this. It says, Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And let that be characteristic of our marriages. That love bears all things. It endures all things. And it believes and hopes all things. So this isn't just enduring the bad, but believing the good in your spouse. And I think we can see this on a day-to-day level and on a zoom-out level. On a day-to-day level, you know, my, my wife and I, Amy, we, we've gotten a lot of benefit out of this on a day-to-day level where we're like, all right, if love believes and hopes all things, that means I always got to give her the benefit of the doubt. On the level of the kitchen sink, like, okay, so if she just said something and I'm like, hold up, she mean that like this? Because if so, that's really rude. Or does she mean like, like this, and if so, that's okay. Then I'm always committed to, I'll always give her the benefit of the doubt. I'll always assume she didn't mean it in a harmful way. I'm looking for evidence of grace on a day-to-day level. You know what I'm saying? I'll always assume, oh, she, if I could take something one, or, one of two ways, I'll always assume and give her the benefit of the doubt. I don't do that perfectly, but it's just something we've implemented into our marriage to try to believe and hope all things. Now, I think you can zoom out on that and say that we're believing and hoping and trusting that this person is being acted on by the Holy Spirit and looking for evidence actively in that. When we know each other intimately, we see each other's faults clearly and then need to love like Christ loves. All right, now let's pause again. Because there are caveats to this, right? There are situations in the room where I know that people are thinking, all right, so we're supposed to cover over their sins, but what about he is abusing me? What about the infidelity? What, what about the mistreatment? What about this and that and this and that? We're going to get into that this weekend. We're going to get into that because marriage is a messy thing that needs a lot of grace applied and needs a lot of wisdom applied in situations that are difficult like that. Number four, the last one. Cultivate and grow love with your spouse. Man, love is, we talked about emotions are not strong enough to hold a marriage, but they are crucial within a marriage. They're crucial. Man, why did God covenant with his people? Love. He loved us. For his own glory? Absolutely. But he loved us. Why did God choose us in, uh, in Ephesians 2? God chose you before the foundation of the world. Why? In love, he says. Start at the end of verse 4. In love, he predestined us. God chose us before the foundation of the world because of love. You look at the scriptures, man. The Bible is full of emotional books, emotional chapters about love. The Song of Songs, 
is a collection of love poems. It's confusing if you try to read it as a history, but if you read it as a collection of love poems, it's just snapshots, it's glimpses of what emotional married love looks like. You look at the Psalms, it's, they're expressing love through their emotions. Man, God is love. And if we're sharing in a God-centered marriage, it will be characterized by deep, real, even emotional love. Emotion's not strong enough to carry a marriage, but Christ's covenant love is built to be expressed emotionally to our spouses. This is something you must cultivate. You have to work and grow this. Emotions, feelings, they wander, they change, they intensify, they dim. I mean, you have to cultivate this. I think of it like, what do you got to do to be out of shape physically? Nothing. You keep doing what you're doing right now. And you're going to get out of shape real fast. What do you got to do to get out of shape? And nothing. What do you have to do to get in shape? A lot. Yeah, a lot of work, right? A lot of good eating, a lot of good working, right? You have to cultivate that. You have to grow that. What do you have to do to drift away in your marriage? Nothing. It'll happen. You have to cultivate it. You have to grow it. You have to nurture those feelings, that deep emotion. You have to work to keep that alive. You think about, man, remember when you and your spouse were first dating? How exciting that was? You have to work and cultivate. Now, some of you are like, yeah, it's because we're stupid. Well, possibly. (laughs) We're free in Christ to love and appreciate and enjoy and be satisfied in our spouse. Man, we enjoy our marriages. My second kid said, man, tell them to have fun. Tell them to enjoy it, to cultivate this love between us. We love because Christ loved us. We are, that's part of the covenant keeping here is that we are mirroring Christ and his love. See, he loves us and he loves our spouse. And then he has put you in your spouse's life to be a physical, tangible reminder of his love. You're supposed to remind your spouse of Christ's love for them. So love and pursue your spouse like Christ loves and pursues you. You're his representative. Okay, so these four behaviors, they're just real short, and we're going to go through a lot more this weekend, starting with John in the morning, going to Brody in the, in the evening tomorrow night. We're going to talk about a lot more behaviors. But it's important to remember these behaviors, they find their root in covenant love, right? Covenant love is the soil, It's the dirt. It's the ground from which the the beautiful flower of marriage love grows. That's the foundation. We're going to talk about a lot more this weekend about what that looks like. Let's pray. Jesus, thanks for these men and women. Thank you for the marriages uh, that are represented in this room. God, I know that people are struggling. Uh, I know that some people are doing well. I know that everybody needs improvement in our marriages, God, whether that be communication, whether that be realizing the foundation that we have in you, acting more like you in covenant keeping, God, that we have a long way to go, God, but thank you that in our imperfections that you allow us to be part of preaching your gospel to the world in how we're married and how we interact with one another, God. And I pray that this weekend would be rich for everyone in the room, for me and Amy, for these couples, God. Lord, I, I pray that the ripple effect from this conference, God, would, would, um, would be seen throughout all of our marriages, God that the things that your spirit would do in us this weekend, God, would, would, uh, would impact the, our marriages for the rest of our lives. We love you, Lord Jesus. I want to worship you now. In your name we pray. Amen.